0: Well, good evening, good evening. Well, I'm excited for tonight as we're going to dig into part two here of the genealogy of a critical spirit. Thank you, Jay. And uh, it might be that you came in here tonight and the joy that we were just singing about in that song has not been a part of your life because of the things that we've been talking about last week and are going to be talking about this week and so we're just we're trusting that if negativity is a struggle for you that you're going to find some freedom come on as we begin to dig into god's word i'm excited too for next week uh pastor chris ball who is the president of elam fellowship is going to be here with us for father's day weekend so he's going to be preaching so that's going to be an amazing treat for us he travels all around the world. Elam Fellowship is the association that we are a part of. There's a link to them through our website, and, uh, and so you're going to not want to miss that. I was talking to him just this week, and it's going to be not just a message for fathers, uh, but I think a message that's going to uh, encourage us all. So, hey, let me just say, too, I love that wrap-up that Vanessa shared. Wasn't that good about the sovereignty of God? So good. You know, nothing can change the fact that God is sovereign. But we do not benefit from his sovereignty unless we submit in our heart, right? As I was praying about that, I just felt like that's what God was whispering to me. That, that, Fred, nothing can change the fact that I'm sovereign, but you're not going to benefit from my sovereignty unless you continue to submit your heart to me. And so, Father, we just pray that tonight you're going to find in all of our hearts a willingness to submit ourselves to you. Even as we dig into this word that's sensitive, that's, that's challenging, that, that presses us, that, that, that goes to a place in our lives that maybe we feel uncomfortable, maybe a place in our lives where we feel like we've tried to change so many times before but have always failed and we've just given up, that, that, that Father, we would submit to your sovereignty tonight and the sovereignty of your word and that transformation and change would come for us, that we would be like this wellspring of life that we just sang about in that song to this world, not a wellspring of negativity and a critical spirit, but one of hope and faith and words of life. In Jesus' name, come on, and everybody said... Amen. So last week, just to kind of get us moving in the right direction, uh, a little bit of a recap. You can get it on the podcast. We put our notes online every week, so you can get a PDF uh, of the sermon. If we move a little, we cover a lot of ground, and so if we move faster than what you like. Or you can follow along on YouVersion, which is an app that populates all the verses and all the notes are embedded in there also. So last week, we introduced you to the life of Michal, who is Saul's youngest daughter and David's first wife. And we pointed out in 1 Samuel 18, The Bible tells us that her heart was full of love for David. And then you move through some time, probably about 10 years. We're going to talk about the timeline tonight. You get to 2 Samuel 6, and it says her heart is filled with contempt. And we ask the question, how does this young girl who was once full of love get to a place that's now full of contempt? That's why we entitled this message, The Genealogy of a Critical Spirit. How did she become critical? How did it get there? Just like we can study the the family tree of Mikhail's natural life to figure out how she got to be in the world. Sometimes there's a family tree in us spiritually of things that we struggle with. So last week we unpacked the idea of my family. That the family that we grow up in, based on how they treat us, can make us vulnerable to a critical spirit. And we learned that in Mikal's life, being the daughter of Saul. And we unpacked this idea that when I am neglected, instead of being cherished, I'm vulnerable to a critical spirit. When I'm neglected, instead of being cherished, I'm vulnerable to a critical spirit. And we're gonna try to cover two tonight. We'll see if time allows us. All right, so Matthew 12, beginning in verse 43. I wanna read this. We covered this last week because if you struggle with negativity, we want you to understand this idea of the principle of displacement, the principle of displacement. So I'm gonna read out of Matthew 12, 43 to 45. We kinda ended up there last week, so I'm gonna start there this week and then we'll get into the two parts that we're going to cover. Tonight, Matthew 12, 43 to 45. When an evil spirit leaves a person, it goes into the desert, seeking rest but finding none. Then it says, I will return to the person I came from. So it returns and finds its former home empty and swept and in order. Then the spirit finds seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter the person and live there. And so that person is worse off than before. That will be the experience of this evil generation. Now, Jesus is definitely talking about evil spirits here. When we talk about a critical spirit... We're not talking about an evil presence in your life. That's another sermon for another time. When we talk about a critical spirit, we're talking about something that characterizes you. We're talking about your spirit, that there's a negativity that defines who you are. And Jesus isn't just talking about how to deal with evil spirits. He's also teaching us about the power of displacement, that if you don't replace what has been displaced, then you're going to be worse off than you were before. Now, we're talking about this in this message because if you leave your here tonight and just say, I'm just going to hunker down and I'm going to be a positive person this week. And you're just going to do that through your own effort, just a sheer act of will that you're just going to move negativity out of your life. And that's all that you do. And you don't replace it with the things that we talked about last week and replace that emptiness inside of you with things that we're going to talk about this week. It's going to be like you pulling back a rubber band and just stretching that thing out. And when you let go, it's going to hurt somebody. You with me? You've got to replace in your life the void that gets displaced from the negativity that gets removed. And this is what I would also say, this idea of the power of displacement, is that we teach as a church, you've got to focus less on the broken things inside of you and focus more on the good that God has called you to do. And when you begin to do the things that God's asking you to do, it has a displacing effect on the ugly things inside of us that should not be there. All right, so somebody say, my relationships. my relationships. My relationships. So we talked about my family last week. Now we're going to talk about my relationships. So, you know, last week, my family, you don't get to choose what family you're born into, but you get some say in the relationships that you want to engage in. Whether they're romantic relationships or whether they're friendship relationships, you have you have some choice. All right, 1 Samuel 19, 11 through 17. We're gonna read some chunks of text because it's quite a story that we're gonna find here. Then Saul sent troops to watch David's house. They were told to kill David when he came out the next morning, right? David has become the most popular person in Israel, even though Saul is the, still the king, even though Saul, uh, David is his son-in-law. Uh, he's, he's ridden with jealousy and envy, and so he's trying to kill David. But Michal, David's wife, warned him, if you don't escape tonight, you will be dead by morning. So she helped him climb out through a window, and he fled and escaped. Then she took an idol and put it in his bed, covered it with blankets, and put a cushion of goat's hair on its head. When the troops came to arrest David, she told them he was sick and couldn't get out of bed. But Saul sent the troops back to David, and he ordered, Bring him to me in his bed so I can kill him. But when they came to carry David out, they discovered that it was only an idol in the bed and a cushion of goat's hair at its head. Why have you betrayed me? This is Saul asking his daughter, Michal. Why have you betrayed me like this and let my enemy escape? And Saul demanded of Michal. That's what he demanded. I had to, Michal replied. He threatened to kill me if I didn't help him. Now, what we don't know is, is, did Michal say that because she's becoming this manipulative person like Saul? Or did she say that because she's in fear for her own life because she sees the man that her father has become, and she's afraid for her own life. We don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us that. I think it's probably a little of both. So let me just fill you in on the timeline. When David climbs out that window that night, it's the last time that Mikael sees him, probably for about 10 years, right? She risks her life to help him escape, and then he is gone for probably about a decade She never sees him again. Four years, four years, David lives in caves. Right? He's, he's on the run, and Saul is senting, sending his warriors out to capture him, and, and, and there's all these, these, these interesting stories throughout scripture of this interplay where David has an opportunity to kill Saul, but he doesn't because he's honoring the king. Four years of chasing each other through the wilderness. Finally, he settles in a Philistine stronghold called Ziklag, and he was given this town for he and his army where they could live. Now they're there for another four years. So eight years, Eight years go by, no word from David to Michal. He does not send for her. There are no messengers that are sent. There's no attempt to go and rescue her from her father so that she can be with him. By the end of this eight years, he's married two other women. And most historians believe that he also has several concubines as well. Now we know from Scripture that David had some people that were called his mighty men. And they were called mighty men because they did mighty deeds. Mark Patterson wrote a book called A Man in a Pit with a Lion on a Snowy Day because one of these mighty men actually went down into a pit on a snowy day by himself and killed a lion. When you read about the things that these men do, they belong in one of the Avenger movies. right? These are amazing men. It almost appears as though they have superpowers. Don't tell me that David could not have gone to some of those men and says, I want you to bring my wife to me. When you read the list of things and don't think that all these feats aren't being talked about, that's one of the reasons why we have them in Scripture because people knew, right? There was no Facebook back then, but people knew, right? There was stories were passed from, from person to person, from town to town. Did you hear what David's men did last week? Did you hear what they did? And I, I'm just got to tell you, I think Michal's thinking to herself, when are these mighty men going to come for me? but they never came. David never sent his men to go rescue his wife. 1 Samuel 20, 35 to 42. The next morning, as agreed, Jonathan went into the field. So we're backing up in time to this moment where David is leaving. So we're back to this, this moment 10 years prior. Jonathan went out into the field and took a young boy with him to gather his arrows, right? This is the plan that, that Jonathan and David, they came up with an incredibly elaborate scheme in order for them to know whether or not David had to leave for good, right? So he's escaped out of the window, he's hiding in town, and he's trying to find out whether or not he can come back. And so he and Jonathan concoct this, 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 this strategy. Start running, he told the boy, so that you can find the arrows as I shoot them. So the boy ran and Jonathan, Jonathan shot an arrow beyond him and that was the signal to David that he would have to flee if the arrows were, were, were shot past the, the young man that were helping him. When the boy had almost reached the arrow, Jonathan shouted, the arrow is still ahead of you, hurry, don't wait. Right, This is him actually talking to David. So the boy quickly gathered up the arrows, he ran back to his master and he of course suspected nothing. Only Jonathan David understood the signal. Then Jonathan gave his bow and arrows to the boy and told him to take them back to town. And as soon as the boy was gone, David came out from where he had been hiding near the stone pile. Then David bowed three times to Jonathan with his face to the ground, and both of them were in tears as they embraced each other and said their goodbyes, especially David. At last, Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn loyalty to each other in the Lord's name, and then the Lord is the witness of a bond between us and our children forever. Then David left and returned to the town. I like to think maybe that Michal might have been up in a a tower in the palace and could see far out to this emotional goodbye. There's bowing and embracing. There's promises. I'm certain that Jonathan would have gone and recounted this emotional experience that he had with his closest friend with his sister. And you know what I think Miko's thinking? When is he going to come to say goodbye to me? Right? When is he going to come and cry because we're going to be apart? When, when is he going to come and pledge his loyalty to me as his wife? He, if he can come up with such an elaborate plan to say goodbye to my brother, why can't he come up if he's so clever Why can't he figure out a way to say goodbye to me? So here it is. When I am rejected instead of being pursued, my life becomes vulnerable to a critical spirit. When I'm rejected instead of being pursued, my life becomes vulnerable. To a critical spirit. Last week we taught that when I'm neglected instead of being cherished in the family, in the context of the family that you grow up in, your life becomes vulnerable to a critical spirit. Now we're talking about the context of relationships, whether it's marriage, romantic relationships, dating relationships, friendships. It could be friendships that in the workplace or maybe in your in your church or your neighborhood. But friendships and relationships that you have when 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 you're rejected in those relationships, when you feel as though you've been rejected by those people, instead of being pursued by them, I think this is one of the things that we learn from Mikhail's life. Our life becomes vulnerable to a critical spirit. So let me talk to you about some things that you can do. If you're here and you would say, Fred, I, I, you know, when I look back into the story of my life, I've, I've got some rejection issues. P- people that I trusted that betrayed me, that I, I feel like I've been rejected by them. Let me talk to you about the power of displacement and the things that you can do to begin to, to restore that. One is that you've got to find a healthy church. It doesn't matter to us whether or not it's this church, right? If if we're not what you're looking for, we say this all the time. Tell us, we'll give you a list of churches in this area that you can go and visit that are healthy. You have got to find a healthy church that you can be a part of. Because the second thing that you've got to do is that you've got to find trustworthy people that you can begin to rebuild friendships with. If you find a healthy church, then you're going to find trustworthy people. Now, that's another sermon for another time, too, of all the things that make a church healthy. And if you've got questions about that, I would love to give you a long list. But I'm just going to give you the most important thing. When you go to a church, if there is not accountability amongst the leaders of that church, then I would say go find another one. You you want to be a part of a church where the leaders of that church are in a permission-giving relationship with one another. That's the beginning of the health of any church is the accountability that those leaders submit themselves to, just like we do here at City Life, And there's lots of other churches that do it, too. There's lots of other churches that don't. And I would say that's the beginning. It's the foundation of a church being healthy. You find a healthy church, you can begin to find trustworthy people. And when you go into a church like that, it takes time. I get it, to build those friendships. It, you, you don't want to just find the first person that says hi to you and just say, this is the person I'm going to trust, because you don't know if they're a trustworthy person. They might be new to the church, and they've got their own issues that they're working through. Are you with me? This is one of the ways that you know they're not trustworthy. As you begin to be their friend, if you find them, them saying to you all the time, now, I probably shouldn't be telling you this, right? That's not a trustworthy person. Now, it might make you feel good because, they're, oh, they're willing to confide in me about things that they shouldn't. Right? If they're willing to confide in you about things that they shouldn't, they're going to reveal your secrets to somebody else. Right? Not trustworthy. Find a healthy church. Find trustworthy people. It's the power of displacement. The relationships that you've lost because you feel rejected, you've got to replace those with healthy relationships with trustworthy people. This one is you've got to forgive past neglects. I know it's hard. Listen to this proverb. We're reading through the Bible. We've been in Proverbs recently Proverbs 24, 17 through 18. Don't rejoice when your enemies fall. Don't be happy when they stumble. Anybody else? I'm raising my own hand. I'm having a hard time with that? I'm just telling you, right? When people that have rejected me, that have betrayed me, right? When something doesn't go right, you know what I think? Oh, you're going to get yours. Am I the only one? I'm the only one here tonight, right, that has that feeling. You you begin to think of ways. You begin to make suggestions to God about how he could punish them for the way that they have wronged you. Half of the Psalms in the Bible come. They're called prayers of imprecation because David is, is, is distraught about rejection, and he wants to talk to God about his pain and the enemies and what they deserve. Listen to what it says, don't rejoice when your enemies fall. I think this is actually funny, verse 18. Don't be happy when they stumble. Listen to what 18 says. For the Lord will be displeased with you if you do that and will turn his anger away from them. It kind of tests your motivation, doesn't it? Because you read that and you go, you know what? I'm not going to be happy that they're suffering even though they deserve it. And the reason why I'm not going to be happy is because I don't want it to stop. Right? Isn't that what it says in Verse 18 right? For the Lord will be displeased for you and will turn his anger away from them. I'm just saying, there's some humor in the Bible, right? So, so I, I get it. God gets it. It's hard. When people have rejected you, when people have done things to hurt you, when people have betrayed you, there's something inside of us that wants to see revenge. I'm telling you, you have got to forgive past neglects. If not, that unforgiveness will take up residence in your heart and will turn into bitterness. And this idea of being a critical spirit will become to define who you are because of what somebody else did to you. Forgiving past neglects is not about making yourself vulnerable vulnerable again to people who have hurt you. That's not what forgiveness is about. Forgiveness is coming to a place in your heart where you no longer harbor ill will towards that person. It does not mean, it does not mean that you've got to continue to put yourself in a relationship. Pursuing a relationship is a second step. That's a separate decision. Just because you forgive doesn't mean you need to continue to pursue a relationship with that person. Another one, you've got to pursue if you want to be pursued. You have to pursue if you want to be pursued. A lot of people struggle with loneliness because they suffer from passivity. When you find a healthy church and you're in this place of now where you're, you're ready to, 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 to build relationships with trustworthy people and you're, you're, you're moving on your journey of forgiveness towards these other people that have, have harmed you. you, you can't just sit passively by and say, okay world, here I am, come be my friend right? You, you've got you've to do things. You've got to show up at the men's group. You've got to go to the ladies' event. You've got to be in a life group. We f- do all of these things on our calendar, not because we're trying to fill our calendar with church things. We do all of these things because we're trying to create opportunities for people to build relationships with each other, but you've got to initiate. You've got to show up. You've got to engage. You have to pursue to be pursued. Let me give you three more, and then we're going to move to our last one. You have to flee neglect. You've got to get away from it. And if you're married, what that looks like is getting help. If if the neglect that you're dealing with is in the context of your marriage, fleeing neglect doesn't mean that you give up on that marriage. Fleeing neglect means that you say, we're going to get the help that we need. Whether it's reaching out to us, whether it's getting professional counseling, but fleeing neglect in a marriage is not fleeing the marriage, it's fleeing the problem. And the way that you flee, flee the problem is you raise your hand and say, we need help. You flee neglect in family, outside of marriage by putting in healthy boundaries, right? One of the biggest ways I find as a pastor that people struggle with fleeing neglect as an adult is with their adult parents, right? You become an adult. You're not living at home anymore, right? They're not, they're, you're, they're not, you're not, they're not financially responsible for you. You're not a dependent on their taxes, right? The list can go on. You, you are an adult, peer with your parent. But guess what? They're still your parent, and the Bible still expects us to honor our parents. But honoring our parents doesn't mean that you continue to put yourself in a position where they can harm you. Honoring your parents doesn't mean that you continue to put your family, especially if you've got young children, in an environment where they can influence them in a negative way. It might be one of the healthy boundaries that you've got to put in place to flee negativity. If it's, again, somebody that you're not married to is that you might actually have to limit the amount of time that your parents have to your children because of the negativity that can get passed on, because of the way that they treat and relate one another. It might be that you've got to sit down and talk with your parents about things that are of concern to you. Healthy boundaries within families is one of the ways that you flee neglect. We have a long conversation. With young couples as part of their premarital counseling about what it means to leave and cleave, what it means to reestablish relationships in life. So many people don't get that right. Flee neglect in every other area of your life if you're not married to them, if it's not family, but these are people that are neglecting you and hurting you. Unless you have a clear word from God that you're supposed to stay in that relationship to help them, what I would say to you as your pastor is walk away. Walk away. God, unless he's called you to be a martyr in that situation, which sometimes he does, then you're going to need a lot of advice and a lot of help for how to rescue that person. Otherwise, I'm just telling you, get away from those relationships. Turning the other cheek, what Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, is not about turning your head so they can hit you again. It's about not responding to provocation and, and about escalating the conflict. That's what Jesus is talking about in that text. He's not asking you to continue to put your life in a position where other people can continue to hurt you. You should have a sense of freedom to walk away from friendships if people are harming you. Come on. All right, somebody say, my grief. All right, so we talked about my family. We've talked about my relationships. Now let's talk about grief and how grief is a, uh, something that we all experience in this life and how if we don't deal with it the right way, then we become vulnerable to a critical spirit. All right, 1 Samuel 25, 1 Samuel 25, 39 to 44. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, praise the Lord who has avenged the insult I received from Nabal, right? Because Proverbs hadn't been written yet. He didn't know he wasn't supposed to do that. And it kept on doing it myself. And Nabal has received the punishment for his sin. And David sent messengers to Abigail to ask her to become his wife. And when the messengers arrived at Carmel, they told Abigail, David has sent us to take you back to marry him. Interesting, isn't it? He can send for this woman, but he can't send for his wife. David has sent us to take you back to marry him. She bowed low to the ground and responded, I, your servant, would be happy to marry David. I would even be willing to become a slave washing the feet of his servants. Quickly getting ready, she took along five of her servant girls as attendants and mounted her donkey and went to David's, Went with David's messengers. And so she became his wife. Listen to verse 43. David also married Ahinoam from Jezreel, making both of them his wives. Now, it wasn't uncommon, men in those days, to have multiple wives. But, was, but what was uncommon is for you to have one and for you to abandon that one And go find two more. Saul, meanwhile, listen to this. Listen to this. Mikhail's journey see we read this story like we opened with last week where Mikhail is filled with contempt and she says all these ugly things to David when David is dancing right uh, as the Ark of the Covenants being uh, restored to its proper place and 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 she says all of these terrible things if you're like me that you've never not until recently did I study this I used to think who does she think she is when you begin to read the story of her life we see the genealogy of the critical spirit that's in her. When we read about what she's been through, you know what we say is, of course she struggles with negativity. The family that she grew up in used her and manipulated her for political gain. She was neglected when she should have been cherished. Now we've just read about her marriage and for 10 years she's been waiting for her husband to come for her and she is rejected instead of being pursued. Saul, meanwhile, had given his daughter, as if she's property, because that's what he did the first time, given his daughter, Michal, David's wife, to a man from Gallim named Palti, the son of Laish. Still no effort for David to come for his wife. He takes two other wives, and it says here that she's given, she's given. No choice for her, No rights as a woman in that day and time. All right, so let's jump to 2 Samuel 3, 12 through 16 and see what happens. So now Saul is dead. Jonathan is dead. They've been defeated by the Philistines, and now David is going to be able to take the throne. And he knows that there are a lot of people that still have a sense of loyalty to Saul and his household. And so he knows he's got to navigate all of that if he's going to consolidate Israel under his kingship. Then Abner sent messengers to David saying, doesn't the entire land belong to you? Right?" That's the message he sent because he's saying, hey, now you can finally be the king. Make a solemn pact with me and I will help turn over all of Israel to you. Now listen to what David says, verse 13. It's 10 years since he left his wife. All right, David replied, but I will not negotiate with you unless you bring back my wife Michal, Saul's daughter, when you come. David sent this message to Ishbosheth, Saul's son. Give me back my wife Michal, It does not say because I love her. It does not say because my life has been empty from the day that I left her. It does not say that her coming back to me is going to restore so much of what I've lost. There's no statement of affection. Listen to what he says. Listen to what he says. Because I bought her with the lives of a thousand Philistines. What's he saying? He's saying this woman is my property. I paid for her. You go get her and bring her to me. Now, I've got a daughter. I'm just telling you. If there's a young man that tries to treat my daughter that way, I'm going to need some of your help so that I don't go to jail for the rest of my life. Right? We read these stories in the Bible as as if they didn't happen. These were real people with real feelings, who suffered real pain, whose tragedies, this isn't some fable that's given to us to teach us some cute little lesson about life. This is history. These people wept. They betrayed one another. They hurt one another. Sometimes we think that the world hasn't changed a whole lot, has it? It's been 10 years, 10 years. She's just property Second Samuel three. Listen to this. The stories fascinate. Fascinates me. Verse fifteen. So Ishbosheth took Michal away from her husband. Right. This is her second husband, Polity, son of Laish. Listen to what it says. Polity followed along behind her as far as Bahurim, weeping as he went. You know how far it is from this town to where they were going? Now, all these cities have changed, so the historical people, the scholars that study this, it's a little bit of a guesstimate, but they're pretty sure that it was probably about 20 miles. 20 miles, this man follows behind Abner, who's a fierce warrior, with his wife, crying every step of the way until finally Abner turns to him and says, you have got to go home. This situation is not going to change. Impalty leaves crying to go back to his home by himself. It is a tragic story, is it not? She's finally found a man who cherishes her. She finally finds a man who's willing to pursue her. She's finally in a home where she's celebrated and and, and she's in a place where someone truly loves her. And in a moment, all of that is taken from her, right? We read the story of her life, I'm just saying I think she did a pretty good job on that day where David was dancing. I'm thinking to myself, if that were me and I had been through everything that she went through, it seems like she could have done a lot worse. But you know what that's called? That's superimposing our own idea of the standards that we have out of our own humanity, and we cannot do that. The standards that we have to live by have to come from God's Word. And when the standard of God's Word is placed over her life, what we find is that even if we have suffered difficult things in this life, even tragedies like hers, we are still responsible for the condition of our own heart. So this is the last one I want to give to you, and it might seem a little bit insensitive, but let me explain. This is the last principle, right? We talked about when I'm neglected, instead of being cherished, my life becomes vulnerable to a critical spirit. Tonight we've said when I'm rejected, instead of being pursued, my life becomes vulnerable to a critical spirit. And this is my third one that I want to give you as we're wrapping things up. When I am entitled, instead of being storied, my life becomes vulnerable to a critical spirit. Let me give it to you again. When I'm entitled, instead of being storied, storied, my life becomes vulnerable to a critical spirit. I don't want a Bible without the story of Job. Do you? I don't want a Bible without the story of Joseph. Do you? Betrayed by his brothers, sold as a slave, imprisoned unjustly and falsely accused. When you read about what happened to Joseph, we're thinking, gracious me, I don't want my Bible without the story of Ruth. I don't want my Bible without the story of Esther. And I don't think any of you do either, because we learn so much from these stories of people who have suffered greatly. God reveals himself to the world through the stories of these people. We don't want a Bible without these stories, but what we want is those stories to happen to somebody else. Right? Can we just be honest? We love these stories as long as it's not our story. God promises us that he's going to use your life to reveal himself to the world. And one of the ways that he's going to use your life and my life is that there's going to be times where he asks us to suffer unjustly. I'm not talking about the suffering that comes that we deserve because of our own foolishness. Again, that's another sermon for another time. I call this kind of suffering redemptive affliction. It's the affliction that God allows through his sovereignty to come into our lives and invade our world that feels unfair, but through that journey, he changes us, and through that story, there is something of the gospel that is revealed to the world. He wants us to allow him to story us. That's why I love this wrap-up. Vanessa didn't know what I was gonna be preaching about tonight, but this idea of the sovereignty of God I do not benefit from his sovereignty until I submit myself to him. And part of submitting myself to him means that I trust him to story my life even if it means including pain that would cause the rest of the world to say it's unfair. We cannot be entitled in this life for a life that's without suffering and a life that's without pain. So let me just give you a a few points about how you can know if you're stuck in grief. If you're stuck in grief because of the way that you've been hurt or the way, the the trauma that you've experienced in your life, maybe it's far beyond even what Mikhail experienced through God allowing your life to be storied. If you're stuck in grief, you need a grief counselor you don't know what that is or you want to get connected with one, then you come see me and I'll put you in touch with a group here in this area, Genesis Counseling, uh, that has some incredible people. There's also some groups. There's a group that meets here once a month for kids in grief. Kids struggle with grief. Kids get stuck in grief and then it carries on into their adulthood. Let me just give you these. If you talk about a traumatic event like it was yesterday, you're stuck in grief. If it's something that happened to you 10 years ago, but when you're telling the story and people say, when did that happen? And they're thinking it happened last month, but it happened 10 years ago, you're stuck in grief. Lingering feelings of being forgotten by God, you're stuck in grief. If you have these lingering feelings of God has forgotten you and abandoned you, you're stuck in grief. If you have sustained drastic change to your personality, where people are like, I don't even know who that person is anymore, right? You're stuck in grief. Sustained isolation and uncontrollable depression. I put those together because they go hand in hand. You isolate, right, because you're grieving. And when you isolate, by being alone, depression comes. Sustained isolation, uncontrollable depression, you're stuck in grief. An inability to both trust and hope again. If you think trusting people again, trusting God again, the, the feeling of hope is an impossibility, you might be stuck in grief. All right, here's the last one. You're in denial about getting the help that you need. You're stuck in grief. People are coming to you and say, hey, you need help. And you're like, no, I'm good. You're stuck in grief. You, you've got to let somebody, the power of displacement. You've got to let somebody come in who's trained, can begin to help you understand the pain that you've been through and begin to walk you through a restorative journey to where your heart can become healthy and whole again. Second Samuel 6, 23 the band comes up. 2 Samuel 6, 23. This is one of the most sobering verses in all the Bible. So Michal, the daughter of Saul, remained childless throughout her entire life. A lot of people have a lot of opinions about why that verse is in the Bible and what it means, but I think the context is clear. This is spoken over her immediately after she says these things of contempt over her husband David. And I think this is the consequence that God brought her into because of the negativity that she chose to walk in. We're responsible for our own hearts no matter what. I'm going to say it again. Regardless of what you've been through, regardless of what I've been through, we can never use it as an excuse to reject the character that God expects of us. The pain of our journey is not permission to live less than what God created us for. When you look at the names of Saul's two daughters that David had an opportunity to marry, I think there's a prophetic picture there for us. See, this oldest daughter was Merab, her oldest one that was eligible for marriage, and David didn't marry her, like we read about last week, and her name means increase. Her name means increase. Mikael, you know what her name means? Who is like God? Which way are you choosing? A life of just wanting more? The Merob choice? Just a life of increase? Is that all you want out of this life? Or a life of wanting to be more like God? Because this life of wanting to be more like God, it's a road that's a lot less traveled but it's also the road that is filled with the most meaning and purpose. I'm not trying to belittle the pain of your journey. I'm not trying to make light of the suffering that you've endured in this life. What we want to say to you as a church tonight is that we want your heart to learn how to hope and trust again that he did not create you to be a person of negativity. He didn't create you to be a a person that would fill this word with just critical thoughts and critical actions. He put you in this world because he wants to use you to reveal himself so that other people can find hope. Have you ever stopped to think that it could be that the story of your pain and the story of your journey is gonna be your biggest testimony in this life? that other people are going to see you and and know what you've walked through, and they're going to begin to ask the question, how is this person so filled with hope when they've been through so much? I'm telling you, when those moments happen, the door swings wide open for them to hear about your God. Stand with me. Father, I pray for the people that are here tonight, as we step into this closing song and in this moment of worship, Father, whoever that person is, maybe it's several people who we've been talking about them tonight. Maybe they're here right now when they think that one of their friends called us to tell them about what they've been through because it feels like that was their story on those notes tonight. Father, I pray that tonight they would discover the power of displacement that your Holy Spirit would fill their life in such a real and a profound way that it would begin to push out everything else that doesn't belong. Father, we know there's a work that you do and then there's a work that you expect us to do. All the practical things that we talked about last week and all the practical things that we talked about tonight, I pray, Father, that people will begin to do those things and to take those steps so that their life can be filled with new things, things that are going to give them life. In Jesus' name, come on and everybody, said together. Amen. As we sing this song, there's going to be people up here to pray with you. Come on, let's worship together.